Miracy. Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Talit is Human today. I'm on vacation for a few weeks, and while I'm gone, I thought what we would do, rather than making you miss out on our great podcast, was to replay for you a favorite from right when we started out. And maybe you haven't had a chance to listen to this yet, but even if you have, I'm going to say Dart Lindsley is worth a second listen. So I really hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. See you in a couple weeks. I feel the responsibility to my team, though, incredibly acutely. And when I fail the team in some way, I have a very hard time letting that go. For anybody who's ever had to lay off their team, you know that that's something that's out of your control when it happens. But I tell you, it changes your soul when you have to do it. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this is To Lead as Human. For more than 30 years, I've run a business called Leading Large. I help C-level executives expand their impact, clarify their priorities, energize their organizations, and build cultures of accountability and respect. In this podcast, we help you envision how to supercharge your leadership by blending the art and science of leading with intention. I talk with top business leaders who exemplify the principles of leading large. They know that as leaders, the influence they have comes with an equal measure of responsibility. These leaders not only deliver stellar value to their customers, clients, and stakeholders, they prioritize building organizations that provide purpose, meaning, and a healthy working environment for their employees. We learn from the challenges and successes they've experienced on their human journey. My guest today is Dart Lindsay. Dart is currently the head of global process excellence for people operations at Google. Before Google, he led the human resources transformation and planning organization at Cisco Systems. Before his business career, Dart spent almost two decades in the literary arts as a writer, editor, and university instructor, which surely influences the perspective he brings to his corporate work. Dart and I met when we were both working at Cisco some years ago, and he's one of my favorite people to talk with, especially about the world of work. I find Dart to be one of the most thought-provoking, independent-thinking people that I've ever worked with. And I so have enjoyed what I've learned from him, what I've shared with him, and what we've learned together. And as I started thinking about leaders that I know who really do exemplify taking responsibility for their leadership and being proactive about trying to build more human workplaces, Dart's one of the very first people that came to mind. And he does this inside of very large organizations, which I think is a bit harder than doing it in a smaller organization. So as you listen to Dart, here are some topics I think you should listen for. Dart talks a lot about what humanizing the workplace means. And he talks about how organizations dehumanize people unintentionally as they grow. He also talks about how important it is for him as the leader to be human and in touch with his feelings. Particularly, he talks about listening with love and designing work with heart and empathy. Welcome to the show, Dart. Thank you very much for having me on the show. It is my pleasure. So to get us started, can you just tell our listeners a little bit about your current role at Google for folks that don't know what all those words mean? 
Yeah, I am the head of global process excellence for people operations at Google. And what that really means is that my team is a team of consultants. We provide process improvement consulting inside people operations to anybody who needs it. Let's say your staffing organization is not hiring fast enough, or you feel that it's too costly or that it's too risky. And you've got maybe a thousand people working across your entire ecosystem to deliver that, and no one person knows how the whole thing works. We come in, we help everybody to understand how it's working end to end. We make it very visual by turning it into, into maps and diagrams. We hold it back up, we redesign it together, and then we make it run better. Sometimes that involves a lot of statistical analysis. One way I explain my job is that if an HR department is big enough, there's a corner of it that's really geeky that does statistics and analytics. And the trick is to do that and at the same time make it human. Yeah. And that's, I think, just exactly why I really wanted to talk with you today. So I always love our conversation start, and I'm really looking forward to chatting today. I'm especially eager to explore how you lead your own organization and then how other leaders can learn from your experiences. So uh, let's start with some basics. How would you describe yourself as a leader? One of my deep beliefs about leadership is. I believe in flipping the org chart. And I do this visually, which is that the org chart is a metaphor. And with the, if the manager's at the top, it's a metaphor of control. I flip the org chart so that I'm at the bottom and I see myself as the trunk of the tree. Um, the teams that I lead are like the branches reaching up. And, and as it goes higher and higher, they eventually get to, the, to our clients through the leaves. And that's, to me, that's the appropriate metaphor, which is, which is, to provide support. And so I am a, people would, some of my own team would say, I am two hands off. I'm a very hands off. Every member of the team is a leader. Every member is growing. Every member is reaching up and expanding. And the specifics of what that support is, I believe that what the trunk really provides is, uh, is a sense of purpose. Values are the roots. Purpose is the next thing up. And then focus is the third thing. So you talked about at the very base being values, and I wonder if maybe you could describe what some of your values as a leader are. You know, I think that it must, it's funny because I never think about that very hard, but I realize that there are recurring themes that I come back to that must be from my values. And they are personal freedom and allowing people the freedom to pursue what's most important to them. They are growth, which is at least 90% of the people on my team are in formal training programs and are, as a part of that, teaching others. And so putting people in a position to grow. And I fundamentally, this is another value, I don't believe in categorization of people. A friend of mine who's an artist once said, he pointed out to me, he says, one doesn't equal one. And I said, what do you mean one doesn't equal one? He says, look, draw them up on the board. And I did. He says, you see that one? He says, that one is on the left and that other one, it's on the right. Those aren't the same one. And what I realized is that every time you, you classify somebody into a group, you are ironing out some part of that humanity. And so one of my deepest values is to respect the deep dimensionality of every human and that you have to take every human as a unique instance of an entire world. So this is beautiful. Can you give us an example from your current role of how does, what does that look like when you do that? Yeah, here's one of the key tools that I use and it's called the bubble chart. 
the bubble chart tracks all of the work that's coming into my organization on three dimensions, four dimensions. One dimension is, what's the value to the business? One dimension is, this is the second axis, the y-axis is, is it core to the mission of our organization? Is it core to the mission of our team? We plot our work against those two axes, and wherever there's a dot, it's how much of your attention is going to that. So it's not your time, because we're not trying to track your time and see if you're putting in a certain amount of time. What we're really trying to ask is, are we paying attention to stuff that's important to the business and that's core to our mission, and how much of our time is up and to the right? But there's a third dimension, which is, is it any fun? Is it rewarding to you? And so the color of the bubbles on this bubble chart are actually how rewarding it is. And if it goes into the red, we intervene. We figure out why. And so as a part of work gathering, so as I go out to market the services of my organization to the rest of the organization, I'm looking for work. It's my job as a manager to actually win the kind of work that my team wants to buy. And then it's my job as a manager to allocate work to my team in a way that is conscious of what they individually want to consume. And so then we as a team build this bubble chart because the truth is I'm just creating a structure within which the team can grow. There's a lot of self-identification of what work people want to do. And I encourage people to go out and win the work that they want to do as well. And then we track it over time. And if something goes into the red, we talk about it as a team, which is what are our options? Can we swap it from one person to another? Should we just kill that project? How much of your time is in the red? If it's 10% of your time, but it's high into the right and we can't hand it off, okay, the business reality is we need to keep that. But if it's low into the left and if it's in the red, we're going we're gonna to pop that bubble. And so this is a very like operational, it takes practically no time. We ask people once a month to just tell us, how are you allocating your attention? It takes five minutes. And is it rewarding to you at this time? And we have a scale for rewarding. So the top of the scale is, I'm walking on clouds. And the next one down, I can't remember right now. The one after that is, I'm eating stale cupcakes. That's the, <laughs> the operational definition. I'm eating stale cupcakes. It's not the worst thing I've ever eaten, but it's not the best either. The next one down is, I'm sleeping in wet clothes. And you know what? It's not fun. And the one below that is, I'm walking on shards of glass. And if you get down to wet clothes, we're going to figure out if we can intervene. So you do this once a month with the people on your team. How many people is that? Yeah, 10. And how long does it take? It takes five minutes of data collection, and then we talk about it for about half an hour. It's also the time when we look at what work is incoming, and we celebrate work that's been completed. And so a part of that is I try to provide headlights at that point of what I see coming, even though it's unformed. I say, look, there's some interest over here. There's some interest over here. There's this. What's coming in? Are we going to be able to land it? And my job is essentially as an account manager, the team does really all of the work. And what I do is I look for opportunities. I look for new markets for us to go into. We all do. Right now, we're providing process improvement. Is there an opportunity for us to provide experience design? Or is there an opportunity for us to open up a market into business architecture or something else? Change management, meeting facilitation. And so we're looking for other markets, but we're not going to go into those markets if people don't actually want to do that kind of work. Tell me the story of a person in your group, what they told you they care about, about their work, and how that's mapped to the work they're able to do. One of my team members some years ago said, well, let's take as an example somebody who said, I hire my job to give me great puzzles to solve. So this is somebody who, who solves puzzles in her spare time. This is somebody 
Over breakfast likes to take the GRE practice exam, the logic question. That's what she likes to do for fun. Well, once I know that, once I know that that's what she likes, then I can start to line up projects ahead of her. And I think of it as like a trail of pie, cherry pie for her that I'm laying out, which is going to be the hardest puzzles of the kind that she likes. Now, there were two people on my team at that time. One of them liked big green field open, like solve hunger kind of problems. And the other person liked little Rubik's Cube, really difficult kind of mathy kind of problems. Well, as puzzles come into my organization, I have an opportunity to, because I'm sensitive, because I've interviewed them about that, to actually allocate those things to them based upon their specific desires. And so what we do is I ask this set of questions I've developed over time because I've asked hundreds of people this question because that's what I do for fun is do this kind of research. And so I have a list of 30 ways that people answer this question on a routine basis. And I'm able to say, you know, you've said it this way. Does it mean this? And I'm able to then build out a document for them that says, this is how you've described this. Let's turn this into action for you. You've said that you're on a mission to humanize work. And maybe this is part of what you've been describing, but I wonder if you could just tell our listeners, what do you mean by humanizing work? You know, one of the things I think about this is that every time you put a human into a computer and you represent them into a computer, you've just flattened them down to not being human anymore. Each time you put a job code on somebody, each time you put a classification on somebody, you've limited the range of how you're going to see that person. Human work, sees every human as an individual and does not classify. Human work knows that people are dynamic and not static. We change over time. This is important. When we ask, one of the assumptions of a lot of personality tests, for instance, is that I'm going to find out what kind of a person you are, and that's never going to change. What people want from work changes all the time because what people want from work is situational. When I go to buy a car, I want to buy a four-wheel drive truck. And I want to buy a four-wheel drive truck. Why? Because I have rocky roads to go over. It's not because I'm a four-wheel drive truck kind of person. It's because I have a situation in which I have a rocky road. And so when you actually ask people what they want from work, you have to realize that that's what they want from work in the moment right now. It's not a personality trait. Human work allows us to act independently and not just be acted upon. Have you ever had that job? And I recently wrote to the CIO I worked for some years ago, uh, Rebecca Jacoby, and I said, look, I just wanted to thank you for the work that you gave me for that decade. I said, you know why? You gave me room to swing the bat. And the job I had right after that, I was in a hallway. And every time I tried to swing the bat, I was jammed up against something. And all you really, what I want is I want room to swing the bat. And so human work allows us to act independently not just be acted upon. That's a good description. I want to go, we've been talking a lot about the experience of the people on your team. The title of this podcast is To Lead as Human. And so I wonder, Dart, what does this mean to you as a leader? Maybe how have you embraced your own humanity or, yeah, let's just start there. I feel an enormous responsibility to my team and I feel an enormous responsibility to the business. I feel the responsibility to my team, though, incredibly acutely. And when I fail the team in some way, I have a very hard time letting that go. For anybody who's ever had to lay off their team, you know that that's something that's out of your control when it happens. Um, But I tell you, it changes your soul when you have to do it. 
And one of the things I realized at that time, the, the, when I had to do that the first time, I think it was the only time, um, was that I had not adequately prepared them to work outside of the company we were in. Is that my responsibility? You know, it's a really interesting question. I believe that it is. <laughs> I believe that my responsibility is not just to get the work done that we have in the room with us at that moment. That my responsibility as a manager is to put people in a position to learn the kind of things that's going to make them able to be successful in their current role and wherever they go next. And so it's part of the reason why I'm so obsessed. Why not only is my team being trained right now, is everybody is working on industry recognized certifications that they can carry with them. It's great knowledge. It's well packaged. Um, uh, everybody on my team is learning process design, process improvement, design thinking, and change management. All they are getting three certifications, almost every single one, if they haven't, don't already have them. And so I've had to learn <laughs> how bad I'm going to feel when I do when I do it wrong. You know, when I feel like when I look back and I think I didn't do something right. And you know, and have I learned actually the forgiveness? I have not really, but I, I have learned how to put myself in a position where. I won't have to forgive myself. What are some of the other parts of your humanity that you embrace in your leadership? I'm actually, I was relatively good at this to start off with, and this is because of coming out of the sciences, but I think probably this and out of the arts. So let me take a couple of different things. One is starting without knowledge of things. So frequently, if you really want to understand a situation, you need to start off from a very grounded perspective of unknowing. And coming in with a sense of humility about what you already know and listening openly for what's really there. That's one. But then the second thing is going to sound groovy, but it is definitely listening with your heart. And this manifests in a lot of different places. One of the ways it manifests is listening to your team as much as you can to feel what they are feeling about their job and about their work. But I also think a part of what a manager's job is, is to be a designer of work experience. What do designers need to be able to do? They need to be able to empathize with who they are designing for. They're not designing for themselves. There's lots of stuff that I love to do at work that I'm so excited about that I think my team is going to love and they hate it. So you got to get past that and you have to recognize with empathy what it is that your team really wants so that you can design the experience that they really want. But there's a whole other play here, which is you can also hold up your hands and feel the heat of an organization and you can feel the energy of an organization. And how do I channel the energy of the organization in a way that's going to be healthier for the organization? So then it's like bullfighting. How do I I draw that in and channel it towards something healthy for the organization. And as I do that, how do I bring that work into my team? And then how do I allocate it to my team in a way that meets their hearts? And so I just interviewed Fred Reichold, who invented the Net Promoter Score. He does the most interesting thing. He looks at organizations as what emotional state does every principal player need to be in for a company to succeed? Customers need to be loyal. They need to have that feeling of loyalty towards your company. How do they get that? Because employees feel love for their customer. How should leaders feel about their teams? They should feel love. 
And how should teams feel about their each other? They should feel respect. And so he's actually gone through and he's modeled it that way. And I realized that over time, I've already come to that realization. There's an emotional positioning that every member of an organization needs to achieve. It's not an intellectual positioning. And then how do you encourage that in every direction? So as a leader, taking that charge to love your people so they can love your customers, we know that love comes with risk and that it requires a certain amount of vulnerability. And I'm wondering, was there a time when you felt that acutely or sometime that clicked for you that you were like, ah, this is what I have to change so I can better love? Yeah, you know, there's something about that. And this is something I actually asked Fred was, you're asking employees to love the customer. And that's a selfless act. And it's very hard for me to be selfless for your profit if you're a leader, right? But there is a risk with it. And a part of that risk is, I'll tell you a a weird risk I realized recently, which is that your team won't love you back, potentially. And if you're willing to sort of take a knife for your team, you kind of expect it to be two directional and it won't be. And so you actually have to understand that it may not go both directions. And so is it a quid pro quo? It's not. That's the way love works, right? That's the way it works. And I will admit, I feel it. I feel it kind of deeply when it's not reciprocated. Somehow it doesn't land with the team members. I had two people recently leave because I just couldn't manage. I just couldn't achieve belonging, I think. And, you know, I did the best I could and I couldn't do well enough. What do you think contributed to that inability in this case? I think it was a system bigger than me. I don't think it was really me. I think it was, you know, you're not in control of a person's entire life in your organization. And you can do the best to make the inside of your of your organization wholesome, but you just don't have control over everything. Would you say they ended up leaving because they didn't have the experience from the rest of the organization that they were having in your group? In one case, that's the case. And in the other case, it was me. I wasn't able to somehow create belonging in the space. I can imagine that was a little painful. Yeah, it was painful and it was, uh, I don't know, disempowering is the word I want to say. It's sort of like saying, I'm working with my hands, but somehow the thing I'm trying to change is not changing and I wasn't able to do it. And I honestly believe it was a flaw in myself that I can't perceive. Yeah. So was there a moment you can think of when it clicked for you that leaders have to be more human in order to create this more human workplace? The root cause of dehumanization is in the very largest systems. So for instance, let's take a look at a hospital. And it happens in these little moments in a large system. The hospital is a large system. A hospital once, I watched them do this, wheel my father, my 90-year-old father, to radiology and park his wheelchair in a hallway, not facing other people in wheelchairs, and sort of diagonal to a wall. It was how you would place a box on a loading dock. It wasn't how you place a person among other people. And that's because the large system of the hospital had forgotten that my father was was an individual human. And had forgotten that he needed to be placed in a way that positioned him to other humans in that space. Well, you can see that every place. TSA does it. Anytime you're in a queue, anytime you become a number to be processed or something to be processed. And so 
to me, I'm always moving between sort of these theoretical ideas and what their implications are to life on the ground. And how do these larger systems actually influence in that? I am stunned often that you're able to create little human pockets inside these large, fairly bureaucratic organizations. And that's part of why I wanted to invite you on to talk today, because a lot of our listeners are entrepreneurs and they run smaller organizations. And on their behalf, I would like to ask you if they want to create a more human organization, if they want to be more human themselves as leaders, how do they start and what are some of the things they could do to build an organization from a smaller size into a larger organization that maybe can avoid some of those pitfalls? Yes. I think when you are small. So when you're small, you can be very close to every employee as a customer. And you can be very close to your paying customer as a customer. And what happens as you grow, especially as you build out your sort of your bureaucratic core, is that a smaller and smaller ratio of your company is actually exposed to customers. So one of the things that happens as you grow, there start to be too many employees to know who everybody is. And as there's too many employees to know who everybody is, you lose, you start to turn people into classifications in order to manage the scale. So now you have to put people into job codes and now you have to move them around as numbers and systems. And now you have to come up with with these uh, processes that are going to try to communicate to them what you really want to do. You're going to set up performance management. You're going to set up, you know, these things that are essentially trying to manage your company as you lose touch with the individuals. and. What happens in that particular case is that the HR department serves you as the leader. And when the HR department serves you as a leader, they're going to listen to what you care about. And if what you care about is ultimately only the paying customer and not the employee customer, because you recognize you start to look at people as inputs to production um, and not as individual humans who are customers, you will lose that audience. And when you lose that audience, that audience becomes mercenary. So what do we do at that stage? I've got clients at 50, 100 people. It's happening real time. I believe that what you need to do is you need to split your HR department. And one part of your HR department is really focused on creating a workforce that's going to be able to deliver against your strategy. The other part of your HR department is facing toward employees as the work experience design function. It's not just listening. It's not just employee listening. It's work experience design where they're thinking about what are the systems that are going to deliver the kind of work experience that people really want to have. Yeah, that's very cool. So reflecting on your own journey as a leader, what's a moment that was defining or pivotal for you that really shaped you as a leader? Something happened when you were leading and it really affected the trajectory of your leadership. My first manager out of college. I was a criminal defense investigator. And yeah, you didn't know that, did you? I did not know um, that. <laughs> I was. I was. For six years, I was a criminal defense investigator, and I worked for the alternate public defender's office and, and worked for other attorneys, but doing mostly criminal law, some civil. My manager would every day make me a bologna sandwich on white bread with chicken soup and hostess ding-dongs. And we would sit at the table and we would talk about stuff, all sorts of stuff. I don't know why that's so important to me. I think it's unusual. 
But this idea that your manager is the person who might make you a bologna sandwich and chicken soup. There's something deeply human about nourishing that nourishment. So I'm going to guess that a piece of it is providing nourishment, but also that experience of being nourished. So I hear in a lot of what we've been talking about today, this tension between what does the leader need to deliver for the organization and what does the leader need to deliver for the team, for the individual human beings who have come together to think up, develop, create, sell, support, nurture the delivery of whatever it is we do to earn our profit. Maybe some of our listeners are asking themselves, but what's the payback? How does that benefit the organization? And I wonder if you have an example of a concrete benefit that your own organization has delivered that you think is different because of how you've built the organization. I had people on my team who were working on process improvement, but the thing is that they were creatives and that they weren't really being fed by this analytical task. One of them, turns out, was a, was a psychologist who'd studied experience, and another one was a painter. And so I asked them, what line of business could we start to deliver that you would be fed? And that's why we created the experience design function inside my last company, which was that we said, this is a service that we might be able to deliver internally. Okay, so we put them against that work, we stood that up as a practice, and it went on to be a very important function inside the company which wouldn't have existed if we hadn't followed that path. And so what did we do? We looked at the tree that was my organization and we said, there's a branch that wants to grow in this direction. Is that direction going to be healthy for the company? It's going to be healthy for the company. And so he set up that practice and now that is a living practice in my last company that still exists. And so what did we do? We didn't make a branch. We let the branch grow. That's a good example. And I appreciate particularly this notion that if we're only thinking transactionally, we're probably never going to get to the humanity piece. We have to get to the humanity piece to challenge that transactional thinking. So that kind of brings us to the end of our conversation, at least for the time being. And I want to ask you, as I like to ask everyone, so as we wrap up, what's the one piece of advice that you would offer to other senior executives if they also want to be more fully human as leaders so that they can build workplaces that are more fully human? Look, my biggest thing is I feel very undeveloped as a, as a full human serving my team. I talk to other people where I can find levels of depth of understanding of humanity. And so what I would say is I think it's an ongoing practice. You know, I have a podcast. It's called Work for Humans. And recently I interviewed on it, Shalini Verma. Well, I talked to her. I walk out of there thinking I'm a Neanderthal. I just feel like I'm just completely undeveloped as a human when I talk to her. And that's because she's really studied it and she's really worked on it. And so my biggest advice is, this is one of the things. I talk about work as a product. As I study it, thinking about it as a product, sometimes I say, it's not a product. No, it's a service. And then I say, no, it's not a service it actually acts more like a relationship. So how people feel about their work is in many ways more like a relationship than it is like a product or a service or a service offering or something like that. Well, if it's a relationship, the emotional maturity and depth of the members of that relationship is it's an important way of running your management practice. You know, it's, and so should 
be thinking about it and expect it to be work. I haven't worked on it nearly enough, not nearly enough as I should have. And what's dumb and really bothers me is that I'm pretty close to stop working for money. And um, I, I feel like I'm still learning. And I feel like I'm still getting better. I feel like that growth direction is unlimited. And so you just, Peter Drucker said about management, he said, management is a, a liberal art. And I agree with that. It's like writing. It's something where you get better at it forever and you never feel good enough. And so um, I just think it's, you know, checking in on the, on the emotional maturity and depth of what you're doing as a leader is important. That's really beautiful. And that's part of why I describe it as the art and science of leading with intentionality. Well, a huge thank you to Dart Lindsley for our conversation today. Dart, where can listeners find out more about you and your ongoing work? Definitely going to my podcast, Work for Humans with Dart Lindsley. It's a relatively young podcast, but I'm very excited by what we've done so far. So and, you know, you can find me by going to letsredesignwork.com. And that's where the survey is, but it's also where some of my writing is. Great. Well, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate having you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And you asked me questions that I was like, gosh, I'm not sure I know what my values are. So I know they're there, but I'm not sure that they're articulated. So thanks for asking me those questions. They were hard. I love the way you answered the questions and that you were willing to share your internal questions and challenges and thoughts. Please keep listening as I share some next steps you might take on your own leadership journey. Hi, this is Sharon. I'm popping in just before the takeaways to remind you that as an executive coach, I'm always looking to support new clients. If you or someone you know might be looking for an executive coach, head over to my website, leadinglarge.com, and you can book a complimentary appointment with me. In the first 25 minutes, we'll be able to identify a challenge you're facing and talk about whether I'm the right fit to work with you. I look forward to hearing from you. Several things that Dart talked about, I think, are important points of reflection for every listener. The first one is when he said, you know, I'm going to get better forever as a leader and never feel good enough. I think it's important to recognize that leading is a journey. There isn't really a destination. And so when you're thinking about your own leadership, that's something I'd like you to hold in mind. One of the things Dart does that I think is so profoundly different than other leaders is the way he thinks about designing work. And what he described to us is his own process for finding out what is it his employees get from their work? What do they buy, if you will, from their employer when they take a job and keep a job? So what I would love for you to think about as you go back into your own workplaces, what do your key employees want from their job and how can you help redesign their jobs so that they are operating at a higher level of meaning and a deeper level of engagement and fulfillment? How do you do that? I would start by picking two or three people that report to you and scheduling a casual conversation with them where you ask them, what is it that you get from your job 
that makes you want to stay here. And when you have that conversation, make note of the emotional, intellectual, and spiritual gains that an employee can identify. After two or three of these conversations, the challenge for you then as a leader is to take what you've learned and consider how can you help each of these employees reshape their own work, their own job, so that they are doing more of what feeds them and brings them life and also helps fulfill the company's mission and less of those things that drain the life out of them and lead them to feel disengaged. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this has been To Lead is Human. You can find out more about me at leadinglarge.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G, large.com. To Lead is Human is part of the Miracy FM podcast network, which also includes such shows as Soul Savvy Business and Making It. This episode was produced by Cynthia Lamb. Jeff Govertson assembled the episode. Danny Eaney is our executive producer, and post-production was provided by Post Office Sound. So you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. If you like the show, please leave us a starred review and make sure to tell your colleagues about us. It really helps us spread the word. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on To Lead is Human. I'm Molly Mahoney. I'm Danny Eaney. I'm Virginia Muskies. I'm Melinda Cohen. I'm Dave Lacani. I'm Michael Port, and you're listening to Making, Making it. it. You would think that when you hit the New York Times list or the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, you would feel like you made it. For me, it never has. I think making it can mean whatever you want it to mean for you. Making it is about having time to spend as I want to spend it. Making it really is about being free to live according to your own genuine values and priorities. It's about acceptance. Not only like making money, but make a difference. Make a contribution. contribution. Like feeling like I'm making a difference to someone. And I don't think making it is a one and done. I think it's an ebb and flow spiral type of pattern. Making it, to me, really means being able to bring your whole self to the table. It's really a choice that you make every day. Because the truth is that you do not really know what you're doing until you get started doing it. I'd say that the first seven, maybe eight years was like pushing a boulder up the hill. If there's anything that I could say to my younger self, I would say, really? Like, for real, for real? Trust. I would tell myself no shortcuts, no shortcuts. The path is always in front of you, even if it's not clear. The key is to keep moving forward. Everything requires work and effort, no matter how much you love it. You've got to find something that you love, something that you enjoy, so that your work is not a labor, it's not a chore. Don't compare yourself to others. 
But recognize that if you see someone else doing something that is of interest to you, you can do it also. I had this sensation of, I kind of felt like the walls were shaking and I just felt like, that's what I've been doing all this time. That's who I am. In that moment, I knew who they were. I knew the burdens and distractions and I knew full potential. And then I ended up ultimately in the ultimate Frisbee Hall of Fame as a Johnny Appleseed for taking the sport out to the world. And so I just said to myself, you have to give this a try. If you don't give it a try, you'll spend the rest of your life wondering if you could have done it. The water is always changing and your comfort with that doesn't come from knowing that there is no uncertainty coming. It comes from trusting in your competence to handle that. I like to say, don't emulate, elevate. That's how you're going to make it. Making It is a weekly podcast brought to you by our team at Miracy. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most anywhere else podcasts are found.